0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss Boris Johnson's position and the cost of living crisis. And you ask us, what happens if Northern Ireland's First Minister resigns? So we've got a lot to talk about today but we'll start off with the letters of no confidence. I think four MPs have put letters of no confidence in publicly since we last spoke. Peter Aldous, Tobias Elwood, Gary Streeter and Anthony Magnell. So should we discuss what sort of these individuals actually mean for Boris Johnson's position and then talk about sort of whether or not this could kind of Sleepwalk the party into into a vote of no confidence. Peter Aldous was uh, was on manoeuvres very publicly, wasn't he? Alva?
1: <laughs> yeah, we were talking about this just before we started recording. That obviously Stephen and I share an office in the Westminster Press Gallery with some other publications, esteemed colleagues. And after Peter Aldous um, announced his resignation, I noticed that he had followed me on Twitter, and another colleague who sits behind us said. Does Peter Aldous follow anyone else on Twitter this morning? <laughs> and, and it turned out that basically he had followed half of the room on Twitter that day just to sort of pack a punch with his resignation, which is especially enjoyable because as Stephen has really been underlining, this is someone who's voted for everything under mm-hmm. under the conservatives, has changed position in line with the the dictat of the top. Of a Theresa May's deal, mm-hmm. you know, completely loyal, just popped up for this to say, I think he should go, and then popped back down again, and made some new friends along and the yeah, way. I mean, <laughs> it's the
0: thing is, like, it is, I mean, as a former Conservative Whip, joke to me, they they said this is a man who's been so loyal, I wouldn't be surprised if some people in the Whip's office, when it was announced, went, who?
1: Because, you know, this, this is someone
0: who, you know, voted against holding a referendum when it was the government whip in 2011, voted for it when it was the Conservative whip in 2014, backed Remain albeit in a very kind of, kind of cursory kind of like, yeah, on balance, why not kind of way, backed Theresa May's deal all three times, right, backed Boris Johnson leaving the UK without a deal. Essentially, yeah, he's notionally been on Twitter since 2011, but basically de facto joined Twitter to kind of go... By the way, I've thought about it, and I think you should go. And in some ways, he is the story of all all three resignations. Because although you know, Anthony Magnall, uh, you know, has been a serial rebel since being elected in twenty nineteen, Tobias Elwood is obviously one of the kind of Remainer Conservatives who's been on the outs under Boris Johnson. Gary Streeter is a you know veteran MP elected in nineteen ninety two. Therefore, someone I think most people assume will be standing down next time. Therefore, has very little to to kind of. Hear. Whereas like Peter Aldous is, is is very much the kind of person who is sort of the backbone of any parliamentary party. In in Tory context, you know, he's someone who owns a fair amount of land in his constituency. Albie, you know, it's one of those comical sort of like, wow, what a hilarious decade uh, British politics has had. And it's one of those places which are like, yeah, gained from Labour by 74 votes or something derisory in 2010 and now has, you know, this kind of like huge, like, landslide majority. Yeah, you know, someone who, lots of yeah, MPs who've been on select committees with him tell, you know, he's great, he's a really honest operator. Whips will tend to like him because, you know, he, this former whip said the hilarious thing is he's probably what will have happened is they will have phoned up and said, by the way, I'm about to do this thing, put the phone down, and they'll have gone, who is this person <laughs> who's never given us? And But I think that sums up the problem, right? There visibly isn't an organized attempt to get to 54 letters. There's just sort of, broad sort of spots of discontent across the parliamentary party our former colleague Patrick Maguire put it very well uh, in red this morning when he kind of said you know across you know age faction location and shoe size <laughs> there is the conservative parliamentary party is, is 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 unhappy so whether it's next week next month they are going to hit 54 letters sooner or later, right? Just because the discontent is sufficiently sort of widespread. So someone who has not gone public but but has submitted their letter was saying, you know, they said, it's as simple as, yeah, lots of colleagues are kidding themselves and because our voters aren't angry about it, they've got over it. And they just said, but now you just knock on doors and people are like, well, they're not cross, but they're still not voting for us. And they said, it's just as simple as enough people go, "Oh, oh, this is bad. Maybe I should hand in a letter. You know, who knows how the sort of, what's happened with energy, which obviously we'll get onto, we'll land on it. But yeah, I suspect that, you know, which is not really going to be my problem for much longer, guys. Uh, But, you know, the difficulty people in the live podcast game are still going to have is (laughs) every, like, until this happens every week, it's going to be like, we've had a couple more names. It could be 54 by the time you listen to this.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that's something I'm really struck by because I think that's, all completely right, but it also just strikes me that on an individual level, it's taking quite a lot for particular MPs to reach the threshold where they would actually submit a letter. It's just sort of fascinating. You have these conversations where people aren't really kidding themselves about the mood of voters, or maybe they are, but they aren't really under any, any illusions about how bad things are. You know, they've had lots of frank conversations with their whip or whatever, and yet they still haven't submitted a letter. And... I just find that just very, very striking. There are people in whose interests it clearly would be to submit a letter who aren't doing it yet, just in their particular patch. Um, So I just don't know, even though some people like Peter Aldis, like all the people we've mentioned, have got there, I don't really know what it will be that will push particular people over the edge. And I also think to a small extent that obviously there's been this shadow whipping operation by some people who are sort of long-term Boris Johnson loyalists. Some of the lines that they use appear to have been working slightly, to, somewhat to my own amusement. But I think the thing that they're really talking about is we know that Boris Johnson has always disliked this idea of people being hounded out by the media, which is why he is often reluctant to let his ministers be fired for things, because he felt like that happened to him. I just have had the odd Tory MP sort of talking about how this is, this is a sort of witch hunt by the media. And they're they're baying for blood and they want Boris Johnson out and they're sort of uncomfortable with that. So, you know, they're they're also not happy, but they don't want to do it on the media's terms. And... That This is something that I think that the shadow whipping operation is very much pushing and things like Christian Wickford's defection, which we, I talked about with him when he was on this podcast, things like that, I think, just sort of reinforced this feeling of sort of not wanting to do things on Labour's terms or on the media's terms. For all those things combined, it's sort of like, yes, there's loads of discontent. People are reaching the threshold, but I think it's happening slowly. I also just find it fascinating on a human level that like if you were going to submit a letter, would you not want to do it with a mate? You know, just to make it seem like a moment. You know, just get get like one one good friend on the to be like, shall we do out letters together? <laughs> what you put <putting> in yours? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll go, go home. my head, we'll do it. We'll make a thing of it. Then we'll go for lunch. <laughs> that's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think
2: those kind of arguments, like um, this is a witch hunt by the media, or this is only playing to Labour's advantage, are the stories that Tory MPs who aren't quite ready to put their letters in are telling themselves and eventually like Stephen says there will and and like you you mentioned the, the threshold there will be a tipping point where other people decide that they'll you know put their head above the parapet and put a letter of no confidence in there's so many things that can happen you know up until then we could find out sort of the outcome of the Met Police's investigation into the parties, we could be able to read Sue Gray's full report. And then, of course, there's the local elections as well in May. So there's so many different like opportunities for those MPs to then stop telling that story to themselves and decide that they're going to do um, what perhaps they've been leaning towards doing. And I also think it's interesting that at first the consensus was that this was like a red wall plot, or at least that that was what sort of Boris Johnson's allies were trying to brief with the, with the pork pie putsch and all of that kind of thing. Um, but when you see other 2019 MPs like Anthony Magnell, who granted has rebelled against the government a number of times before, you see that actually they don't really have a grip on who's opposing them, which is why you have this, you know, MPs by different shoe sizes are putting their letters in. So, you know, I think now it's being referred to as the as the cream tea coup, but you had Anthony Magnall, Gary Streeter, and then I don't know if you saw Simon Hoare on the news as well, basically weighing up whether or not he was going to put a letter in. I think that's really important because those areas those southern seats those safe tory seats are, are clearly places where their MPs are also feeling you know vulnerable under Boris Johnson's leadership as well
1: mm. and to be fair to the lib dems i think that they have had more confidence that this would happen the whole time than labor has had mm-hmm. i think you just sort of have had this feeling since kind of like 2019 there's been this feeling in labor that Boris Johnson is just sort of unstoppably popular and they don't like him but they know the voters do and there's a particular appeal and it's like a big challenge to win the people that liked him back over and people like like Ed Davey but like across the Lib Dems have just never really accepted that and we're saying before they had their by-election wins they were saying actually loads of long-standing conservative voters don't like Boris Johnson are really uncomfortable with the whole proroguing parliament thing um, like that support is more shaky he will run out of road eventually and that's kind of happening. I think, no, Keir Starmer literally said in the chamber, I think it was at PMQ's, you know, or in his statement in response to the Sue Gray report that he has never accepted that, that, you know, um, these these criticisms are baked in with Boris Johnson, but he has always, you know, he's always ref- refused to accept that. Mm. I don't know if that's really, I can't speak for him personally. I don't know if that's true.
0: It's definitely true of Keir Starmer in the, yeah. the thing that, People in the shadow cabinet will consistently say, and indeed, when uh, I went on the road with him for my pieces, and he would, yeah, like just continually would get irritated by this kind of like, oh, it's priced in. It's also equally right. Like Boris Johnson has always been an asset for the Liberal Democrats. Okay, he wasn't an asset for the Liberal Democrats when he was Mayor of London, when he was did better in Liberal Democrat facing areas than he did in Labour parts of the capital. But in his kind of second act as the avatar of Brexit, he was a net asset to the Liberal Democrats in the 2019 election. The problem of course was that their revoke policy was you know appallingly designed for getting soft conservatives to vote for them and the fear of jeremy corbyn among soft conservatives was was quite high but boris has always been an asset for the liberal democrats as pm that's i think the other kind of interesting thing is that this isn't a conservatives in Remainer area centered plot which is kind of hilarious because it it really should be Yeah, I was speaking to someone who said, oh, you know, I'm sure you can turn it around. Okay, one, we probably can't. But two, you almost certainly definitely can't in your seat. There's a lot of subtext in the Conservative Party's um, internal stuff at the moment. But part of the subtext is essentially you have effectively the majority of the party, which wants to be one way, and then you have two minorities. You have a minority of people who broadly think they need to stick with the kind of johnsonite may i sort of approach of how you try and hold on to these seats you have a bunch of people in sort of remain facing places with either a lib dem history or sort of yeah kind of lib dem surges in recent count, uh, general and local elections going guys could we please fix this problem and then you have sort of the majority of the party which is just like including the ones who actually hate david cameron what they really want is to go back to a Political program, a bit like that Thatcherism without its hard social conservative edges, and part of the reason why there is no organised plot and why the party's sort of approach to getting rid of Boris Johnson is kind of rickety, is there is this kind of sense of oh, if this gets thrown up in the air, what happens? Do I end up with something even even more repellent in my seat, or even more repellent to me ideologically? It really reminds me. You remember an in twenty fourteen when the Labour Party tried to get rid of Ed Miliband?
2: Mm. <laughs> Great job, guys! Yeah,
0: (laughs) sterling work they did in that coup. Um, But really, they had been worried about him since the twenty. Well, at the absolute latest, since the twenty fourteen. European elections and in many ways they'd been worried about him you know for for years later 2013 locals hadn't been that great either but it wasn't that a bunch of Labour MPs went well if the new statesman's been critical of him we really should get rid of him it was then it marked the moment when people who had for months been saying things to me like I'm really worried about how it looks in my seat went, oh my god we need to just do something we need to do something now yeah yeah. obviously that plot failed but that is partly because the Labour rule book is, makes it very hard to get rid of the leader. Whereas I think if, when Conservative MPs reach that point of, oh my God, we need to do something, even if it's triggered by something as strange as, you know, a critical Telegraph op ed or a critical spectator yeah. cover, um, they will, mo- they're much more likely to succeed simply because basically. The only important rule in the Conservative Party rulebook is the MPs get to decide. And if you don't like it, there's the door, you leaflet stuffers. And um, and so, yeah, they they will, I think, reach that point. The question, I suppose, is whether or not the energy stuff and all the other pressures we're going to talk about are going to... Expedite that process.
2: Yeah, well, that was a perfect segue because we do need to talk a bit about that. We've just we're recording just after the news has broken that the energy price cap is going to go up fifty four percent. So that will rise by six hundred and ninety three pounds for the average household, and it's even higher for those on prepayment plans who are usually, you know, people with less money who are more vulnerable. Um, And to give a comparison, it went up £139 on average in October. And remember how much, I mean, my energy bill went up massively then. So it's huge. And I've, you know, I've been speaking to people in the place in the country that's worst hit, Barking and Dagenham, which is a sort of outer East London suburb, because their bills have already gone up so much already, they couldn't even contemplate that they could go up any further. So obviously, Rishi Sunaki is now announcing some mitigations for that, but it looks like it's going to be uh, in the shape of sort of deferring the pain rather than removing the pain and only going to kick in sort of in October rather than when people need that money now. So Keir Starmer was sort of going on the cost of living crisis in PMQs yesterday, wasn't he? And trying to sort of pivot into, into pressing that, that, that bruise there.
0: The Prime Minister has more chance of persuading the public that he didn't hold any parties than he has of persuading them that the economy is booming. High taxes are not just the result of low growth. Under this government, we have seen a pandemic of waste and fraud. From the Prime Minister's yacht to government contracts for mates of ministers, they have treated taxpayers as an ATM machine for their mates and their lifestyles. We find now we find, Mr. Speaker, they've written off 8.7 billion pounds on PPA, and the chancellor's writing off
2: 4.3 billion in fraud. That's enough to cover the tax hike he's inflicting on working people. Was it successful, Alva?
1: It was definitely very interesting. Um... Because I feel like he was kind of trying to do two things at once. Because I think that they feel like there's only so much mileage you can get out of Partygate in and of itself. Mm. And so they were, I think that they did catch Boris Johnson unawares. I think he was ready for another six bullish answers about, you know, how there's an ongoing police investigation. And then he found himself having to talk about his approach to taxes. But it, I think it was trying to do two things. It was, I think, firstly, trying to take advantage of this moment where i think people are a bit more plugged into politics i have no i've no basis for thinking that except just anecdotally with the way i think that the party gate thing has cut through and People I know are talking about it much more. But I think he was just sort of trying to take advantage of this moment where people are watching politics closely to talk about Labour's message on economics, because that's where they they feel like they need to improve their credibility in order to Mm -hmm. win an election. Everyone close to the Labour leadership will always tell you that Labour only ever wins when it beats the Conservatives on economic credibility. And that's a, that's a real weakness of theirs um, because people think that Labour's heart is in the right place, but it can't be trusted with the public purse. So, kind of trying to take advantage of this moment to pivot onto saying yeah. that all these arguments that Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, has been working on for some time, arguing that the Conservatives have become the party of low growth and therefore high taxes, that basically because of economic mismanagement in the entire time over a decade that the Conservatives have been in office. We have such low growth that the only way we can raise funds to pay for public services is by putting up taxes, which increases the burden on ordinary people. So kind of trying to make that argument and talking also about Conservative waste and how they are actually the party that mismanages the finances because they give contracts to their mates, Keir Starmer would Mm. say. Trying to make that argument, but sort of also signal to people exactly like everyone you were speaking to on your reporting trip yesterday, that Labour is plugged into what's actually happening for everyone looking at their bills, that for all that lots of people are angry about what was happening in Downing Street or wasn't during the pandemic, that actually Labour is more in touch with ongoing concerns. But I think there's also a smaller point that um, Labour really wants to sort of punch the bruise of, of Conservative MPs' anxieties. And so for all that it was about their economic message on its own terms... I think that they went on tax rises because they know that that's really unpopular among Conservative MPs. If you keep asking questions about that at PMQs, no matter how loyal people want to be, they're not going to be, you know, cheering so much and backing the PM on something that's quite politically uncomfortable. I think so much of Labour's strategy at the moment is to remind Conservative MPs of their values and what they stand for. So you had the sort of the line on decency and reminding them that they're the party of Winston Churchill, but you're also getting these uncomfortable questions about taxes and that's directed not so much at the public and more at the conservative back benches.
2: Yeah I think that's yeah that's a clever way to drive a wedge and what I've also noticed Labour are doing now is they're kind of you know, it always used to be that they talk about cuts. Well, you've cut this X amount, so you're only putting, you know, you're only basically helping X service stand still, or you're only sort of refunding what you've taken out of the system in the past 10 years. But they're now talking more about waste, which I think is really interesting, because we've obviously had these big stories about sort of the money lost to fraud on some of the COVID schemes, also the money lost on unusable PPE, which I think has gone up to 8 billion now. Those kind of stories make the front pages of the right wing newspapers, because they really don't like um, taxpayers' money being misspent but it's really interesting that Labour are sort of putting their tilt on, on that now um, and with someone like Rachel Reeves as Shadow Chancellor they do have the pedigree to do that because she is someone who you know has years of experience kind of prosecuting the, the wasteful way that the government sort of does contracts and and spends public money on privatising particular services so I think that's quite an interesting way of going at it too because it obvious, obviously aligns with some of the sort of neuroses of the right wing press as well but obviously the danger is you're basically saying spending public money is bad ultimately so I think some sort of tax justice campaigners do worry about that message. But, you know, it seems to be something that's working. Apparently, Rachel Reeves comes across as credible in the focus groups that, that Labour does.
1: She also loves doing the, the Bank of England, my former employer. Has been yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she has loads of excuses to say that at the moment.
0: <laughs> in the public polls, right, Labour have been closing the gap on economic competence for some time. During the Keir leadership, I suspect largely because of what's happening in the real economy rather than anything that's happening in the chamber necessarily. But one of the things Rishi Sunak is absolutely correct about is broadly the Labour Party does better in elections where the question is, who is better at spending more money on the public services? And even though, yes, it is true to say that the increases in public spending in Rishi Sunak's more expansive budget than he had last time, and indeed the... Yeah, the kind of I think it's always helpful to think of Hammond's chancellorship of coming in two phases, twenty fifteen, seventeen, seventeen and seventeen to nineteen. And the Hammond two phase, as it were, was more expansive. Now, yes, um, those increases in spending were in the case of Hammond, you know, it was an end of austerity for some people in some parts of the country, but not very much if you were local government, not very much if you were in a city, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yes, the Rishi Sunak more expansive budget is a clawing back of only some of the the cut. I think it does make sense for Labour to kind of bank the sort of like, great, if this is a debate about spending money, and this is, you know, the thing that Rishi Sunak will privately tell his allies is he'll say, look, we are we're lurching towards a situation where, on leveling up, on you know, on 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 energy, the debate we're having is who can spend money better, and that will always be a Labour strength. Now, I think he's wrong to think it will always be a Labour strength, but a good defensive way for the Labour Party to make sure that it remains a Labour strength is basically to go, yeah, they're spending more money, but they're wasting it because they're giving giving it to their mates because they don't really believe in it, whereas we would give it to our mates and we would believe in yeah, you know, kind of yeah, yeah. It runs with the grain of what they're saying. Like, I mean, like the underlying problem for the Conservatives is that, um, although it is not true to say what Rishi Sunak said today when he said, you know, no British government can stop a nuclear power plant in Germany being closed, it's like, I mean, imagine for a moment we could have built some of our, some more of our own. <laughs> um, it is true to say that unless you invent time travel and you um, make the Blair government take nuclear power, you know, seriously, not in 2006 when the, the lights were going out, metaphorically in the Blair administration um, and get them to start doing it in 97, 98. There's very little you can do about this problem now, but it is going to be a huge problem. That not only do they have energy prices going up this year, their solution to it is to go. What we would like is for people to be paying for this price rise over subsequent years by paying back the rebate we're going to have. Now, obviously there aren't very many conservative seats left in London. However, the yeah. prime minister does hold one of them. Um, it is a problem also that their solutions to this involve council tax rebates, which, as you know much better than, than, than I know, right? loads of people uh, in London who cannot afford the energy price You know, are, are in houses that are you know rated above band D. Uh, and that will be acutely painful for them in these council elections in Hillingdon, the Prime Minister's local authority, in Westminster, in Wandsworth, in Barnet. And I think, you know, kind of to come back to this thing that something will cause a panic in the Tory party. Uh, I do think that the sort of cocktail of stuff happening in the energy market they can't fix, the low-growth stuff, as Alva has described, and the fact that their solution to the energy price stuff does have, I would say, a expensive houses in London-shaped hole in it, I can easily see how the thing which does kind of cause the Conservative Party to go for a maybe-this-is-fine to panic is um, losing two or three of those, those, yeah, those remaining sort of conservative councils in, in London.
2: Yes. And I did speak to someone who is going to a food bank in Boris Johnson's own constituency who did tell me how much she's struggling. She, she was already £500 in, in debt to her gas company before the prices even went up in October.
1: Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer.
2: From The New
0: Statesman World Review comes France Alliance. A special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vock, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on ACAST or wherever you get
2: your podcasts. now it's time for a section we like to call...
1: You Ask Us. You Ask
2: Us. So our question today is, what happens if Northern Ireland's First Minister resigns? Um, Alva, you've been looking into this this morning. I know that you were Mm. frantically filing a piece just before we were recording. What's going on? And then I
1: got my finger caught in the door. I don't know. I feel like they're connected, even though they're not. I just feel (laughs) like it was the headspace I was in. (laughs) Stephen's looking (laughs) sceptical. Anyway, yeah, so... um, It's been reported this morning that Paul Given, who is the first minister in Northern Ireland and a DUP politician, um, is going to announce his resignation this afternoon. So probably by the time um, listeners hear this, that will have already happened. And so some of the things that we don't know yet will be clearer. Um, But it's a good question as to what happens, because until recently... If the First Minister of Northern Ireland resigned, it would have meant the complete collapse of power sharing in Northern Ireland. And because of legislation that's being brought in in Westminster at the moment, and which will apply retrospectively, and which is definitely going to pass, it only sort of means that the executive collapses. It still effectively does, but there are some sort of changes that leave some things in place and allow some things to carry on. So basically... Paul Given resigning will mean that automatically Michelle O'Neill resigns too. That's not a political point by Sinn Féin, but the First Minister and Deputy First Minister in Northern Ireland are sort of joint heads of the executive. So the resignation of one means the resignation of both of them. So we won't have a First Minister or Deputy First Minister anymore. But the other ministers in the executive will maintain their positions and... In a way, that sort of doesn't mean that much because no new decisions will be able to be taken and the executive won't be able to meet. So it means that things that are already in train and were already going to happen, decisions that have already been taken will remain in place, but no new decisions can be taken. And that will remain the case for, it depends on the legislation, but between six and nine months. So it means that some things will stay in place, but we won't be able to change anything, which means that the coronavirus legislation, or the coronavirus rules that the DUP is not really a fan of, <laughs> will maybe remain in place unless they do something, which we'll see later, unless Paul Given maybe postdates his resignation and they manage to do something about the coronavirus legislation further down the line. It also means that the budget that the executive has been working on won't pass. Um, and there are loads of other decisions that, you know, some things like appointing a victim's commissioner, which m- won't necessarily mean that much to listeners, but means, means quite a lot in Northern Ireland. Things like that will just be put on hold. So we were already on an election footing because there's going to be you know, there are going to be elections to the Stormont Assembly on the 5th of May, no matter what. We're already kind of on an election footing with a lot of posturing from all the parties going into that election. But we now just kind of completely are because politics is just going to be completely suspended until then. So what's the backdrop
2: of this? Because there were reports that they were going to stop checks at the border on um, products coming from Great Britain into Northern Ireland, weren't there, which could be a breach of the Northern Ireland protocol.
1: Yeah, and that's like the whole a whole other thing. It's so weird that 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 happened last night and hasn't even been the top story because of this announcement that's also coming. So Edwin Poots, who's the minister responsible for this, also a DUP politician, ordered the people who conduct the checks at the Irish sea border to halt those checks, basically just to signal that the DUP is not happy with those checks continuing. The weird thing is, though, that those checks haven't stopped yet. And it's not entirely clear what's going on. He sort of says that they will be stopping. It's just taking a while to work out the finances around it. No one really knows what that means. (laughs) Stephen Nolan heard that on the radio and I was a bit confused. (laughs) Um, But basically just like civil servants are in a really tricky situation because um, the minister in charge is essentially telling them to do something that could breach their international legal obligations But Edwin Poots and the DUP are saying that they've received legal advice, which means that they can do this. And crucially, the British government has said it won't stand in the way and isn't standing in the way. Mm. So, again, it's sort of the two things combined um, are being criticized as just political stunts by the DUP's critics because it's not necessarily clear how much more leverage the UK or the DUP or the Northern you know, Northern Irish Unionists will have in negotiations over the Northern Ireland Protocol by doing this, because already the UK government had said that the conditions had been met to trigger Article 16. So some people think that this is a sort of cynical play to the DUP's base at a time when they're not polling very well ahead of an election, but that this won't really make a material difference. But in a way, it really might, because this does signal a bit of a crisis, the two things combined. And it might be more of an impetus on the UK government and the EU to act, especially with Liz Truss newly in post. But it just means this is just like a a whole other front of crisis for Boris Johnson and Liz Truss to deal with. And the EU, when the stuff happening in Ukraine as well, um, and for the Irish government, puts the Irish government in a really tricky situation. But I think it also just... um, it has big implications beyond just the Brexit negotiations and the decisions that need to be taken in Northern Ireland in the short term. It's more like I think that just from speaking to people this morning, this is probably the beginning of, of an end to power sharing in Northern Ireland for quite some time because if the DUP buys out now... Imagine if we recorded this and then it turned out Paul Given changed his mind. (laughs) 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 But, you know, assuming that that does happen, if the buying out now over the Northern Ireland Protocol, the, the bar is set very, very high for them going back into power sharing because one of their big anxieties is that after the 5th of May... Sinn Sinn Féin will be the biggest party they'll have the first ministership for the first time they've already indicated they would be reluctant to share power with a Sinn Féin first minister even though as I said earlier the two the two posts are essentially the same but the DUP was already looking likely to not cooperate in that situation but now it set the bar quite high where it, it has exited the executive over the Northern Irish Protocol mm. and would clearly need a big win on that to go back in. And then just in general, once you collapse the executive, the stakes are higher to get back in just in general. Every time that that has happened in Northern Irish politics, it gets harder to bring people back to the table. Certainly that's what all the people in the other parties have been saying this morning privately because the second it's collapsed then people come back to the table with their new demands (laughs) and the stakes are even higher so the DUP will have the things that it wants because it's walked out but also Sinn Féin will come back with new demands and it will just be so much harder to get an agreement so it just looks like maybe these are the last days of Stormont for quite some time.
2: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and please leave us a nice review and don't forget to subscribe.